Hello and welcome. Um, I am so glad to be here this evening and so glad to see such uh, a nice crowd. Um, and I'd like to welcome you to the EASGAP talk this evening at the Harvard uh, Faculty Club. My name is Vival de Jean-Marie. I am the convener of the talk this evening. And um, I am honored and humbled to introduce our speaker this evening, very special, Dr. Kressner. Um, Dr. Neil Kressner is a sociopsychologist who has spent more than three decades studying extremism in its various forms. He's also an expert on the American Jewish system. Most recently, Dr. Kressner is the author of The Sons of Pigs and Apes, if I may show, that's the wonderful text, and I encourage you to take a closer look. Um, and uh, which was named Book of the Year for 2012 by the Journal for the Study of Anti-Semitism. The book received praise from feminist psychologist Phyllis Chesler, who is a Harvard Law Professor, um, Alan Dershowitz, former British Minister for Europe, D Dennis McShane, German scholar Matthias Quinzel, Israeli historian Robert Wistrich, San Diego State University Professor Khalil Mohammed, and former White House Deputy National Security Advisor Elliot Abrams. So this should definitely be on your must-read list. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Dr. Kressel's other books include Bad Faith, The Danger of Religious Extremism, Mass Hate, The Global Rise of Genocide and Terror, and Stack and Sway, The New Science of Jury Consulting. Dr. Kressel has taught at several universities as well. He holds a master's in comparative history from Brandeis and a doctor in social psychology from Harvard. He was recently a visiting associate professor at the Yale Initiative for the Interdisciplinary Study of Antisemitism. He currently is professor of psychology at William, at William Patterson University, where he directs the Harness Program in the Social Sciences. He has written widely for popular, scholarly, and scientific publications, and has appeared on NPR, MSNBC, Fox News, The History Channel, The John River Show, Voice of America, and many other broadcasts. His work has been widely cited in print and online media, including Forbes.com, The Economist, Commentary Readers Digest, The Washington Post, The New York Post, Slate.com, and elsewhere. So I am delighted to welcome um, Dr. Kressels, and uh, I'm looking forward to an exciting and very stimulating talk. Uh, welcome back to Harvard, Dr. Kressels. So it's all yours. Welcome again. Thank you very much, Vivaldi, for that very kind introduction. Um, the question, when you start talking about the topic that I have for this evening, the question is where to begin, and it depends very heavily on the audience. The topic of the talk is the great failure of the anti-racist community. How and why contemporary global anti-Semitism has been downplayed and ignored. And the problem is that the group I would really like to be talking to are the members of the anti-racist community who've been neglecting anti-Semitism. 
And of course, it's very difficult to get an audience with people who are not interested in the topic that you are talking about. So I often find myself talking or preaching to the choir. I don't know if that's going to be the case tonight or not, but I often find myself talking to, first of all, an audience which rarely includes um, any 18-year-olds, any 20-year-olds, 25-year-olds, occasionally one or two, but not too many. And I get a lot of people who are members of the Jewish community and often who are um, strongly identified and um, um, shall we say, um, not college student age members of the Jewish um, community. So as a result, um, the place where I would ordinarily start my argument would be trying to build up an argument that anti-Semitism, contemporary anti-Semitism has been neglected and um, in particular, Muslim anti-Semitism has been neglected. And then I would build that case very, very carefully. Um, except that the people who come to my talks are very often disproportionately people who already agree with that. And so that puts me in an odd situation. Um, what I will do tonight is I'll call attention to just a few cases before I get to my main argument. One is a guy who died about five years ago. And he was widely, his name is um, Sheikh Mohammed Syed Tentawi. And he was the Sheikh of Al-Azhar University, which was pretty much the highest level position that a person could have in the academic Islamic world. So a very highly regarded guy. And that when he passed away in March 2010, most in the Western media, in the New York Times, Washington Post, most of them described him as the quintessential Muslim moderate. And there was some basis for that judgment. He had condemned suicide bombings. He supported the Mubarak government, which at the time was considered a good thing to do, although it's, it's changed. And that he um, criticized female genital cutting. So there were certain progressive things that this guy had done. Um, what generally went unmentioned during his lifetime and in all of the obituaries and in every other comment that I'd seen, or almost every other comment about the guy, was that he was a lifelong advocate, although, albeit a relatively moderate one, of what one might describe as anti-Jewish defamation. His doctoral dissertation, which came out in 1969, disparaged Jews with an abundance of quotations from the Quran and other religious sources. According to Tantawi, Jews in the Quran are characterized by wanton envy, deep-rooted lasciviousness, religious fanaticism, murderousness, and a tendency towards semantic bickering. Jews collectively are accused of corrupting Allah's word, consuming the people's wealth frivolously, and most ominously murdering Allah's prophets. He never offers progressive readings of the, um, the Muslim texts which um, defame Jews, although that's certainly possible. And I um, do not, I want to be clear from the outset, I believe it's possible to have a moderate, non-defamatory reading of Muslim texts. And I also think that if you went through the religious texts of Jews and of other groups, you could find plenty of things that um, required defending. So I'm 
not saying that, there's, that it's not possible to interpret these uh, verses in a progressive way, but the Sheikh never made any effort to do it. Um, instead, he, um, he sermonized that the Jews were the enemies of Allah, the descendants of apes and pigs. Um, that phrase, the sons of pigs and apes, or sons of apes and pigs, is used repeatedly in the Muslim world, and I used it for the title of my um, most, uh, well, my second most recent book, um, because I think that it characterizes the idea that what we are talking about here is not really anti-Israel sentiment in the sense of being critical of the Jewish state and its activities, but rather something that is more fundamental and more deeply um, rooted. But anyway, the Sheikh later decided on tactical grounds to recommend against the widespread use of apes and pigs epithet, um, but he never, he, he said that it, it wasn't good for Muslims to use this, and he said that starting in about 2003, he wasn't going to use those terms anymore, but he never rejected the sentiment behind the words. Um, so anyway, Tantawi um, got a pass on his anti-Semitism. He certainly was not the worst of the anti-Semites in the Muslim world, and in that sense, perhaps he, he was a moderate, but he was clearly an anti-Semite. There are other guys like this. There are, uh, it's very, very easy to find guys who have been called moderates and who are loaded with anti-Semitism. I'm not going to spend um, my lecture doing that. I call your attention to um, um, Mahathir Mohamed, the, um, the head of M Malaysia's um, government, um, of the president of Malaysia, who gave a um, a talk that basically was right out of the pages, or at least parts of it were right out of the pages of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And after he gave the talk, he, before he gave the talk, he had been widely regarded as a fairly progressive leader on other grounds. And um, that after he gave the talk to the leaders of Islamic nations from all around the world, this was back around 2002, 2003, it's an old example, but he got a standing ovation and None of the leaders uh, felt any need to distance themselves from his anti-Semitic remarks in the least. Um, Sheikh Abdul Rahman al-Sudais, who is the, um, who's renowned for his lovely voice in chanting Quranic voices um, at one of the major mosques in Mecca. He says, um, and, and when he came to London to open a, a cultural center, he was hailed as a moderate leader, the best of, uh, or one of the best that the Islamic world had to offer. Um, it's the type of guy we ought to be reaching out to. He said, read history and you will understand that the Jews of yesterday are the evil forefathers of the even more evil Jews of today, infidels, falsifiers of words, calf worshipers, prophet murderers, deniers of prophecies, the scum of the human race accursed by Allah who turned them into apes and pigs. These are the Jews, an ongoing continuum of deceit, obstinacy, licentiousness, evil, and corruption. Um, so anyway, not again what you would expect to hear from a moderate leader. Now I'm now going to um, 
shift gears. I've given you some examples. Examples don't really prove my point, but there, um, I'll get back to um, the flood of evidence that exists at many, many levels. Um, but I'm going to skip, um, to skip right to my thesis now, which is that there is a storm of Jew hatred raging beneath the radar of the anti-racist intellectual community in the United States and throughout the West. This storm of Jew hatred is not taking place in the anti-racist intellectual community. I'm not arguing that the anti-racist community is itself anti-Semitic. There, there may be some cases like that. That's not my argument tonight. My argument is that they are ignoring the anti-Semitism that is existing um, in elsewhere in the world, that this hatred is most intense in the Muslim world, but it is not limited to the Muslim world. It is not just um, extreme forms of hostility to Israel. And I, I want to make the point that many members of the pro-Israel community have argued for a definition of anti-Semitism, which uses something called the 3D test, which comes from Natan Sharansky, which says that certain extreme forms of anti-Israel sentiment actually constitute anti-Semitism. Now, I think that, that um, if you look at those, those arguments, some of them, I think, are in fact valid. If, for example, um, when there is a dehumanization and, uh, and defamation in the way that you're talking about Israeli leaders and when you are, um, um, you're invoking double standards, some of that may count as anti-Semitism, but none of that is what I'm talking about tonight. What I'm talking about is old-fashioned bigotry. I'm talking about the type of hatred, the type of prejudice that if it were expressed about any other group would be immediately recognized as bigotry of the sort that anti-racism scholars study. Um, I'm going to also make the argument that when contemporary anti-Semitism is recognized in the anti-racist community, there is a preference for focusing on non-Muslim manifestations of anti-Semitism. In other words, there is a preference for anti-Semitism, um, particularly when it can be shown to come from right-wing sources, but also when it can be shown to come from, um, say, European countries, the Christian parts of European countries, things like that. There is also a tendency, which is partly justifiable, but only partly justifiable, to, uh, for those who do recognize Muslim Jew hatred, to immediately argue that its sources have nothing to do with Islam. Now, I have made the, I've made the case that I think that Islam does not necessarily have to be a source of, um, of, of anti-Jewish sentiment. However, I think that you can also make the case that if somebody is saying it's got nothing to do with Islamic sources, nothing to do with the Hadith, nothing to do with the Sirah, the stories of Muhammad's life, nothing to do with the, um, the various ways that Muslim theologians are interpreting their religious sources, then um, somebody is really having an ostrich strategy where they're burying their head in the sand. Um, there's also a tendency among those in the anti-racist community who do sometimes mention anti-Semitism to treat it as solely a problem of the past. So I'm going to present data a little bit later in my talk which shows that most of the textbooks that I've looked at to deal with um, anti-racism and prejudice 
they tend to ignore a huge literature um, on anti-Semitism that's been written after 2000. All of their, their sources stop about 1992, and they, start they stop with a very positive prognosis that anti-Semitism is basically fading away. Now, I, I'd initially planned this talk to be um, have a PowerPoint behind me with a computer and a projection. The equipment didn't come through. There's only one thing I really wanted to show you, um, and I can't show it to you in a big form, but I, I put together this nice stack of books that have all been written since 2000, all except one, but I... I like that one book so much I included it in my pile. But all written since 2000 and documenting anti-Semitism in the contemporary world. A good portion of them focus on um, Muslim anti-Semitism, but also on all other types of anti-Semitism. Now, none of this literature, this huge pile, and I could have made the pile twice as high, I just, I didn't know how to format the photograph quite right. But anyway, um, there's, um, that pile of books is almost completely ignored by people who consider themselves scholars of anti-racism. So that, anyway, is um, going to be my main argument. And it is, um, there's also a tendency connected to this to ignore the ways that Jew hatred differs from other forms of prejudice. There is a strong tendency to try to explain hatred and prejudice in a fairly generic way and yet anti-Semitism does not typically follow the patterns of other, other prejudice. We don't find it demographically in, in similar groups. We don't find it, um, well, we, we find that it, its connection to religion makes it fundamentally different from a lot of other types of prejudice. Its longevity, um, the, the fact that it's been around for so long. There's a lot of reasons why anti-Semitism has to be considered um, on its own terms somewhat separately. I, by the way, do not make the argument, many people are involved in a debate about, is the Holocaust unique? And um, having written a book on comparative genocide, I would argue that there certainly are ways that the Holocaust differs from other genocides, but I think that it's really a fool's game to get into comparing whose suffering is worse. Is it worse to have been a Jew in the Holocaust, a black under slavery? I, I can't imagine telling somebody in, um, in Darfur or somebody in Rwanda that their suffering somehow is less than the suffering in the Holocaust. I think that's not my argument for um, the uniqueness of the study of anti-Semitism. It has much more to do with it being a different form of prejudice that requires being studied um, acad from academic standpoint differently. I'm not making the argument that it's worse. I think that anybody who is experiencing bigotry or prejudice um, in an extreme form, that is worse for them. And counting bodies, is a, is a, it's, it's a very stupid way to, to, to go about this, this field. Um, I'd like to make a couple of other points at the beginning, just so that in case anybody's wondering, they'll know where I stand on this. I believe that many Muslims are not anti-Semites. I believe that many anti-Semites are not Muslims. 
I, um, I believe that um, the question of are the vast majority, we often, on, when we talk about Islam and terrorism, the argument is made that it's only a handful of Muslims who are terrorists rather than, a, um, um, than all Muslims. And I think that it's neither a handful, with regard to terrorism, it's neither a handful nor all, but it's probably a, small, a very small core of people who are operational, a somewhat larger group who are supportive of the people who are operational, a larger group than that, which is probably getting to a fairly substantial but non-majority of people who are somewhat sympathetic under some terms to some types of terrorism, but still probably a majority who are against all forms of terrorism. So, I th But when you're talking about anti-Semitism, it's a different, there are different numbers. Um, there have been surveys done which show that in, um, uh, for example, the AD ADL did, a, the Anti-Defamation League did a Global 100 survey where they looked at levels of anti-Semitism in different countries and that if you look at Middle Eastern countries, you find often it's 50, 60, 70 percent of people, 80 percent of people, even 90 percent of people that they classify as anti-Semites. Now, you may ask, they must, how are they classifying people? In the, in the United States, that number gets down to 5%, 4%, 6%. So whatever criterion they're using, it's not a criterion which is so overly inclusive that it includes everybody, but it is counting 80, 90% in, um, in some parts of the Muslim world, 60% in others. Um, also, if you look at the Pew Foundation, which um, perhaps has less of an agenda than the Anti-Defamation League, you will still find that the numbers are huge in, um, in Muslim-majority countries, and you can pretty much predict the, not, not perfectly, because some countries like Greece and surprisingly um, Korea have pretty high levels of anti-Semitism, even though they don't have high Muslim populations, but you can pretty much predict the, um, um, the level of anti-Semitism in a society by the percentage of Muslims living in that society. So the argument that many Muslims are not anti-Semites is not an argument that, that anti-Semitism is not a problem within the Muslim world. Um, Islam, of course, does not necessarily lead to anti-Semitism. Some of the, uh, Tariq Fatah, who's written one of the best books, The Jew is Not My Enemy, um, a Canadian Muslim, he um, considers himself a deeply devout Muslim. Um, Khalil Mohammed, who's um, wrote a nice comment on my book, he's a um, very seriously committed to Islam. Um, there are many, many people in the community writing about anti-Semitism. I mean, many, many meaning among authors. There's, there are, you know, several who are, um, who are themselves believing Muslims. And even beyond that, you find people in the Islamic community who just don't care, you know, um, they're not obsessed with Jews. They're, they're doing, living their lives. They're not anti-Semites. Um, and they are devout Muslims. Um, most religions have been sometimes been a source of bad attitudes towards others. Yes, some Jews, perhaps a fair number of Jews, are bigoted towards all sorts of groups, including um, Muslims. I don't think that the problem is as extreme in the Jewish community, but I think that there is prejudice, and when we see it, it should be condemned. And I believe there is significant prejudice against Muslims in the contemporary world. In fact, in the United States, if you gave me a choice, would I rather be a Muslim or a Jew? 
I would, in terms of just the amount of prejudice it would bring, I would much rather be a Jew. I think there's much more prejudice in the United States against Muslims than Jews. And I think that the difference is that, that my perspective is that the situation for Jews in the United States is substantially different from the way it is in other parts of the world. I think when you go to Europe, things change. And when you go to um, the Muslim world, things change. Um, when you go to um, some parts of Africa, not all parts, but some parts of Africa, you find that things change. But generally speaking, in the United States, um, there's good survey evidence. If you ask people, actually, if there's survey data that shows, if you ask people to say, what's your favorite religion or which religion do you like best in the United States, people typically pick their own. But if you ask them which group, which other religious group do you like next best, or what's your second choice religion, the Jews actually win. In other words, Americans have very favorable, on the whole, attitudes towards Jews, and that they regard Judaism itself as a positive force. So I think that in the United States, one of the reasons, one of the things going on with the anti-racist community is even among people of good faith, and there are many in that community, when they observe, they're, um, they're writing in the United States, and when they observe the situation around them, they're just not perceiving as much anti-Semitism as they are prejudice against other groups. It's a failure to adopt a global perspective, which I think leads to to the um, part of the problem. Okay, now there's um, there's no shortage of documentation about um, anti-Semitism in the contemporary world. I told you about that big stack of books. The problem is that those books are um, very. Um, they often get very good reviews, and they um, they're. They're, it's not like these books are, are widely dismissed in the literature. Some aren't as good as others, obviously, but they're often books that um, escape negative review, but they simply escape review altogether, or they're not being read out, um, by the mainstream, and certainly not by the mainstream in the anti-racist community. It may not be surprising that your average person is not picking up a book like The Sons of Pigs and Apes to read on the, at the beach. It's just not you know, what I expect them to read. However, um, you would expect that people who devote their lives to reading books about prejudice and racism, some of them would be reading these books and that they are largely not read. Now, I'm going to try to document that for you. Um, I'm going to describe a few empirical studies that I am in the process of, um, um, well, they're actually done and um, they're being revised for publication right now and um, come out in a, a book chapter and a journal article a few different places. But in, in any case, one of the studies I, was done a long time ago. This was done in 2003. And I simply did a search of PsychInfo database, which is the main database of articles in psychology. And I did another search of sociological abstracts, which includes all the articles published in major sociological journals. And when I did that, I found this was in 2003, looking at all the literature done in, in the psych literature. It started around 1940 and the social literature around 1960. And I looked at that literature going all the way through to 2002, did not find a single study in either literature which focused specifically on Arab or Muslim anti-Semitism. 
Now, this was 2002, and that was before a lot of the books and a lot of the evidence that I'm talking about um, was published, but there was still something going on there and not one article on the topic. There were plenty of articles on anti-Semitism. Um, a lot of them dealing with the Holocaust, some of, a lot of them dealing with contemporary um, American anti-Semitism. Now, that's, that, by the way, is an interesting part of the problem, which is that social scientists in all fields tend to study, um, all empirical fields tend to study things where they can get data easily. And so American subjects are the easiest ones to get. Um, in, in my field of social psychology, it's an embarrassment how often the subjects are college sophomores from um, good universities as the subjects. And so um, they, and what happens is the idea of, so, so if you wanted to study anti-Semitism, you bring together a bunch of American college students and you give them some questionnaires and that's what you're studying. But the problem is that that's not where you're likely, or at least certainly not until recently, not where you were likely to find much depth of anti-Semitism. And that if you were going to go into um, places like Saudi Arabia, you would find that data collection was a lot um, harder to do, not entirely hospitable. Um, there are language problems even if and the researchers who um, would be most inclined to go there would be least to do this research would be least inclined to be welcome there. There might even be safety questions involved, something that um, I call the Daniel Pearl effect, which is you only have to kill one person asking questions and you get a whole lot of researchers who say, I think I'd rather study something else. Um, so there, part of the reason is, is that. But in, in any case, um, I did, I did, though, wonder whether in, um, in psychology and in sociology, perhaps if we, um, the 11 or 12 years since 2002, or th um, if during that time when all these books were coming out, and the books I'm referring to, books by, um, oh, there's, there's huge lists of them, but Phil Phyllis Chesler, Robert Wistrich did them. Um, there, um, Dennis McShane from, from England did one. Um, there's I, my stack, I could just read you the names, but I'm not, I'm not going to bother you with that. But the point of it is that did this literature make a difference? And also, um, did all the, um, the Pew studies that came out, the ADL studies, did um, all these, these statements from radical shakes that were getting a lot of attention? Um, I read you the comments by the moderate guys before. If I read you the ones by the extremist shakes, um, some of the things they say about, um, you know, Hitler was the most wonderful person who ever lived. You get all sorts of statements like that. Um, would any of this have made a dent on the literature? Well, in, um, this is particularly important to me as a social psychologist. And the reason is that in my field, I think there's a proud history of fighting prejudice. Social psychologists were at the leader, were among the leaders in the intellectual part of the civil rights movement. Some of the first studies cited by Brown versus the Board of Education, that the desegregation case, were studies by Kenneth Clark and by other social psychologists. On um, so and and even on anti-Semitism, you found that social psychologists did some of the most interesting and important work. And some of the work on anti-Semitism actually led to some of the major theories 
theoretical discoveries in the field. So that work um, on the authoritarian personality, for example, was motivated first by a desire to understand anti-Semitism. Milgram's famous shock studies, obedience to authority studies, he was motivated by a desire to understand um, the Nazis. Um, you can, um, Hannah Arendt's important work in social science um, was partly motivated by desire to understand anti-Semitism. Um, um, Bruno Benelheim did work on this. There's a lot of important work which came out of initially the desire to understand. The, um, I think a lot of the work at the um, the Yale Attitude School, where they tried to understand the study of attitudes and attitude change, that had something to do with trying to understand what went on in Nazi Germany. Kurt um, Levine, uh, Kurt Lewin, however you pronounce his name, he was um, one of the founders of social psychology, motivated by a desire to understand um, how the Nazis came to power and the nature of anti-Semitism. So this is a field with a proud history of fighting bigotry, a proud history of doing good research. It's also a field where people are to this day constantly declaring their opposition to hatred and racism in all its forms. And if you ask them, does this include anti-Semitism, they'll say, of course it does. Uh, but then if you ask, well, how, they'll say, well, that's a form of hatred. But if you look for specific references, that's where the, um, the problem occurs. Um, another interesting point is that Gordon Allport who wrote the major work, The Nature of Prejudice, which is almost universally regarded by social scientists as the best, um, uh, best work of the 1950s and maybe the best work ever on the study of prejudice. Um, Allport gave a lot of attention to understanding anti-Semitism. It was at the top of his agenda. He was interested in anti-black racism, but he was very much interested in understanding anti-Semitism and that it was, it was very much on his mind. Um, anyway, so 2014 search of research databases. This time I looked at PsycInfo sociological abstracts, ProQuest social science journals, worldwide political science abstracts. And I searched them um, going all the way back as well as um, looking at the more recent period. Um, when we look at the period pre-2002, I again find what I found in the other study, the other two databases, still there's no work on Muslim anti-Semitism. Um, there is some work on contemporary anti-Semitism, but it's primarily anti-Semitism in the United States, occasionally in a study on contemporary Germany. Um, but that's, that's really what, what they're looking at. But uh, in, the, um, in the, the recent period, there were a number of studies that have turned up on Muslim anti-Semitism now. Um, I would characterize it as a handful of studies in all of the fields, and that when I look at them, I find that most of these articles were in two dedicated issues of journals, both of which were not um, high-impact journals. One of them, um, actually a, a bunch of the articles, I wrote a piece back in 2003 four or five, and they devoted a journal to people responding to my piece. So that created about five or six articles, um, my article and about um, and a few people 
who were either um, you know, somewhat supportive or somewhat critical of, of the position. And there was one other journal um, which um, focused on contemporary anti-Semitism, and there were about seven or eight articles there. And if you look at those together, that those two um, publications constitute about half of the articles that dealt with Muslim anti-Semitism. There, there was one um, article on anti-Semitism, not Muslim anti-Semitism, but in the top-ranked journal of personality and social psychology, but only um, one by a research, Florette Cohn and Lee Jessam um, out of Rutgers did some good work on this, and that, that got some, um, um, some attention. And then the rest of them were largely um, book reviews about Four or five of them were reviews of my book, and then there were reviews of a few of the other books, maybe a total of 15 book reviews. And that pretty much was it for this, um, this whole problem here. Now, mo there, was a, there were quite a few articles on anti-Semitism, and what I found is that anti-Semitism studies is largely taken up by Holocaust studies. And that sometimes when they talk about the Holocaust, they're not even talking about the Holocaust as an instance of anti-Semitism, but rather using, if, if you know anything about the literature on Holocaust education, there is a, there's sort of a break between the people who teach it as the Holocaust and the people who kind of teach it as a generic moral education approach to um, using the Holocaust and then very quickly moving to how, um, how does that make us feel about the person you know, in a, if living in our neighborhood or something like that. So not necessarily that much coverage of anti-Semitism there. But in any case, that's what a lot of contemporary anti-Semitism studies includes. There also are some studies of right-wing anti-Semitism, and then there's the occasional survey that comes out on contemporary anti-Semitism. Now, next thing I did was I wanted to look at racism and prejudice textbooks because it's possible that even though there's not a lot of research, at least when this information is presented to students, that anti-Semitism would be given some um, um, attention. Now here, um, I did not do a systematic study of a huge number of books. I don't have any funding for my work. I do everything on my own. Um, so what I did here was I looked in detail at three textbooks that I considered um, typical that were very widely used. The major, major ones each had been in a, um, a, a second edition, a third edition. Well, one was second edition, another was a second edition, another was a seventh edition from major publishers that were used in many, many courses around the country. So I picked books that were the most highly used and looked at them in some detail. The first one was Bernard Whitley and Mary Kite's The Psychology of Prejudice and Discrimination, which was a 692-page book on prejudice and discrimination that um, when I read it, not with regard to looking for information on anti-Semitism, but I actually read this textbook um, just to kind of bone up on what were psychologists up to these days. When I did that, I considered it a, a pretty good book. I read it and I thought it was, it was well written, it covered things pretty fairly, it was not heavily laden with um, ideology, there was um, a good summary of research and it seemed like a pretty pretty uh, much like the guys were committed to fighting racism in all its forms, it, it, um, as it turns out, um, except um, one. But anyway, um, there were 1,700 sources in the book, 
taking up 66 pages. One of these sources dealt specifically with anti-Semitism of the 1,700 sources, and that five others referred to the Holocaust, but not specifically to anti-Jewish aspects of the Holocaust. Three of the five Holocaust references and the one article on anti-Semitism that was cited in this 1700 source book um, were all from one single anthology that, um, that the author found. So that uh, clearly if you're trying to analyze the importance of anti-Semitism, forget about which type, but just of anti-Semitism to the authors, there were 1700 sources and they covered all sorts of prejudice, but only this very, very small sampling of work um, on anti-Semitism. Two other sources besides those I mentioned referred to the Jews in the titles of the sources in a list of targeted groups. For example, they, they gave four or five groups and one of them was Jews. And um, two sources mentioned Israel, but both of those were assessing prejudice in Israeli society. Uh, there were no references to any books published in the last two decades that focused on contemporary anti-Semitism. Okay, no references to any of the books published in the past two decades focusing on contemporary anti-Semitism. In the book itself, there were no references to Muslim or, anti, or Arab anti-Semitism at all, although the book did include several scattered references to past anti-Semitism. Yeah. Are you willing to take questions during this? Or? Um, yes. Yes. Yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll take one now. Yeah, sure. Okay, so um, there are a number of student groups that are anti-Israel groups with names like you know, you know, Justice in Palestine or yeah. you know, yeah. Muslim, whatever. Have, have there been any studies of the anti-Semitic attitudes of the members, some of whom are Jewish? of these of anti-Israel groups? Um, there's a, let, me, let me defer that one until later. I'll take the type of question I'll take now as a clarification question right. on the study, but things like more general tying it in. The, answer, the short answer to it is there are organizations looking at that. I don't know if anything has been published in the, I haven't found anything in the social science literature on it, but there are reports published, like the, the Brandeis Center looks at that, and there are other groups that, that are looking at that, so people are aware of it. But um, let me, the type of questions I'll take while I'm presenting, I'll, I'll go for maybe another um, 10, 15 minutes or 20 minutes more, and, and then I'll take general I'll questions. But, um, but I, I want to get through the, what the studies I actually did. Um, okay, so then I looked at another one, an, a, a second book. This was more um, in the sociological tradition. This is um, Understanding the Psychology of Diversity, second edition. This was only 303 pages, this book, by uh, Bruce Evan Blaine. And that the, the most direct coverage of anti-Semitism in this book was a one-paragraph treatment in the chapter on race. So there was one paragraph on anti-Semitism which noted that stereotypes of Jews include positive and negative features, uh, but the author cautioned that this did not necessarily mean that prejudice against the Jews will decline. Now, uh, I'm not exactly sure what he meant, partly because it's hard to convey nuance in a paragraph. 
Um, but there were, um, there were set special um, chapters on all sorts of other groups in here, but it wasn't a huge book, but just, that was the mention of Jews. The other thing is there was a line, one line that I thought was very odd in here. It said, the stereotypes of Jewish ambitiousness and achievement are potentially threatening to many non-Jewish whites, was the line. The stereotypes of Jewish ambitiousness and achievement are potentially threatening to many non-Jewish whites. I can understand that these stereotypes might be threatening to people, but I don't understand why particularly would whites be more likely to react to these stereotypes than anybody else. I'm not sure you know, what, you know, what, what, what he's about there, because I think that ambitiousness and achievement if you're, if you're concerned with ambitiousness and achievement, it would be threatening to anybody. So I just, that, that I highlighted in his few sentences, he included that one odd one. Um, his source list includes 730 sources. Um, a few dealt with anti-Semitism, but there were no references on the topic after 1996. So no sources on anti-Semitism published after 1996, although the book was a 2000 and I believe 2013 book. Um, and very updated on every other group. All the other sources were up to date. Um, the book did focus on the United States, but um, so that might be, I could imagine the author saying, well, I was looking at the United States, and in the United States, um, anti-Semitism is relatively less important, but it's hard to justify ignoring the international context of anti-Semitism in a world that's so globally connected and where um, ideas cross, cross borders so quickly. Um, then the last book, the textbook that I looked at, um, is Joseph Healy and Eileen O'Brien's Race, Ethnicity, Gender, and Class, The Sociology of Group Conflict, 7th edition, and 412 pages. Um, this book claimed in, in, its, um, def in defining its purpose that it conveys much of the richness and varieties of experience within minority groups instead of treating them as single, undifferentiated entities. So he's claiming that he's going to focus on groups separately and consider the prejudices um, on their own terms. Um, there was a detailed table of contents with 10 pages of small print of many, many subheadings taking up 10 pages. None of those subheadings dealt with Jews. There was one brief five-paragraph section on anti-Semitism, plus coverage and passing elsewhere in the book. This book was the best of the three. He did claim that anti-Semitism remains a part of US society. Um, and he found, um, it's found among a variety of extremist American groups, including the skinheads and contemporary incarnations of the Ku Klux Klan. So in the United States, those were the groups. And elsewhere, he cited the ADL survey showing anti-Semitism in parts of Europe, including Hungary and Germany. Anti-Semitism um, generally, he, and then he explains anti-Semitism generally in Europe, the United States, and across the globe as attributed to strong traditions of racism and intolerance and, and this is a quote, high rates of immigration combined with economic uncertainty for working class less educated males. Now again, I don't understand why males in this case. 
In other words, is there some evidence that anti-Semitism is more common among males? I'm not exactly sure. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that. And also, he seems to be getting at the rates of immigration, but he's not talking about who is immigrating and who's holding the anti-Semitic ideas. And the truth is that we do know that when groups come to the United States, if we look at Hispanics, for example, the level of anti-Semitism among Hispanics is fairly high among new arrivals um, and higher than among um, whites or among people um, in general who are living in America for a while. But it's also much higher than among Hispanics who've been here for a while. So it seems like once people are in America for a while, at least in the Hispanic community, they are picking up the American values of tolerance. And my hope is that that will go on in other communities as well, including the Muslim community, that I think that um, you know, there's, there's, it's a lot more complicated than that. But in the best case scenario, we would expect that Americanization should lead to a diminution of, of, of prejudice, at least um, towards, um, towards Jews. Now, um, there are no references, though, in this book to Muslim anti-Semitism and no references to the religious roots of anti-Semitism. There's no attempt to examine the social or demographic um, locations of the hatred and no attempt to distinguish European from the American situation, which I think is, um, is unjustified. I think that that distinction should be made when you're talking about anti-Semitism. Okay, the last thing I looked at here was an examination of syllabi, because I thought that maybe the course syllabi, of course, is dealing with racism and sexism, that you'd find something different there. So I searched on the internet for all of the syllabi that dealt with racism, prejudice, bigotry, anti-Semitism, Holocaust, anything that seemed to me like it could include this stuff. And I found 77 courses um, I'm not making any claim to having representative samples here in any, in any of these cases. Um, somebody probably should go back and try to do it with a, um, with a bigger budget. But anyway, um, there were 22 psych courses that I found dealing with the psychology of prejudice, 33 other courses in sociology, political science, or anthropology that dealt somehow with racism or prejudice. And then another 22 dealing specifically with, the geno with genocide, the Holocaust, or anti-Semitism as the topic. Now, in the psych courses dealing with psychology of prejudice or psychology of diversity, 18 of the 22 courses made no reference to Jews or prejudice or, or anti-Semitism anywhere in the syllabi, although there were many references to specific prejudices towards other groups. Three of the courses which did make reference to anti-Semitism dealt with it as part of one class se session where it was shared with other prejudices. Um, one dealt with it um, somewhat more. And in the other anti-racism classes, the ones outside of psychology departments, 27 out of 33 made no references to anti-Semitism anywhere. One of the six, the closest, of the, now of the six that did make some reference, one of them assigned an article by Karen Brodkin Sachs called How the Jews Became White, which was assigned in quite a few of these um, syllabi, which is basically making the argument that the Jews went from being a victim group to being part of the, um, the dominant society. Um, and that was the only coverage of, of anti-Semitism there. One devoted a week to prejudice against Jews, Irish, Italians, and other white ethnics. 
Um, one is signed um, an article by Joe Wood. It's a controversial 1994 article on black-Jewish re relations, um, which did not seem to me to be covering anti-Semitism, really. And one included a week on genocides and final solutions, not mentioning um, of the Holocaust, but by mentioning final solutions, I assumed it must have been dealing with the Holocaust somehow. And um, one, um, one course description mentioned Jews as possible victims of hate crimes, but that was the only um, mention to, um, to Jews. And one covered the Holocaust for five weeks. There was virtually no coverage of contemporary anti-Semitism, Muslim or otherwise. Um, and then if you looked at the courses on the Holocaust and anti-Semitism, only the ones that dealt with, with anti-Semitism as the topic, and that's a very, very small group of only about three or four courses, dealt with Muslim anti-Semitism, and even they dealt with it in a very minor way. And very d disappointing to me was that the only university that gave it coverage of Muslim anti-Semitism in more than one course was Liberty University which is not where I would have expected to find. That's the very religious Christian university, which is questionable on a, to me on a lot of other grounds. Um, anyway, so there's virtually no coverage of contemporary anti-Semitism, Muslim, or otherwise in, in these courses. So all of this is part of a bigger story. I um, am not going to give you the rest of the story. I'm, I'm going to point out there's a huge problem in Middle East studies, which is that is the group of people who have got the language skills, the area skills. They should be the experts who are finding out everything about what's going on. And yet, this is in a deeply ideological area of study where um, anybody who is at all sympathetic um, to Israel pretty much has um, um, no career future. And that a lot of the funding comes from the Muslim world. And there's all sorts of problems there. It's not my topic, but there are books on that and other sources if you're interested. Um, there is also the problem of left-wing um, progressive ideology sometimes seems to um, be deeply connected to the Palestinian cause, and as a result of that, there seems to be a belief that if you are too strong in condemning anti-Semitism in the Muslim community, it will reflect negatively on um, um, on your advocacy. Uh, there's, there's much more to that, to it than that. I'm, I can't go on, I, I could go on for, you know, hours more. I'm not going to do it. I may point, I may point out that in my book, I spent a huge amount of time looking at what I call the um, flawed logic of anti-Semitism denial where I went through a whole lot of different types of flawed arguments that are, that are used uh, in order to uh, deny anti-Semitism, not deny the Holocaust, but deny anti-Semitism. And that there were like types of arguments here, for example, that um, sometimes when I give this talk to some groups, the first thing, I, first question I get is, how can Muslims be anti-Semites when in fact they're Semites? And that, that that's a, sem a semantic argument that really has, has, has no merit. Um, the, I, I'm not going to even go into it now with, with here unless someone has a question about it. Or that Arabs and Muslims don't hate Jews, they hate Zionists. And that if you look at it, or Israelis, 
If you look at what's being said, if you actually look at the content of things that people are saying, you are going to hear the, the Talmud being condemned. You're going to hear all sorts of, um, of hostility being tied into sources that are way predate Israel. Now, one could make the argument that the hostility is driven by anti-Israel sentiment, and then you go back and you um, you know, generalize from there, and there's probably something to their to anti-Israel sentiment being a motor powering anti-Semitism, but it's not the uh, the only motor behind this. Then there's a concern with civility, which says that it's um it's better to accentuate the positive aspects of Islamic and Arabic culture, or that nice people don't criticize other people's religious beliefs. That if this is really coming out of somebody's religion. Um, there's no future in criticizing religious beliefs, and it's better for us just not to talk about um, hatred that has roots in religion. Now, the problem with that is that you're giving a pass to hatred, that, and that no one feels that way about um, you know, Christian anti-Semitism. All the religious roots were identified, and, all the, and it was never a, a question that, that the anti-racist community took that on pretty clearly. Um, then there's an argument that, um, of benign neglect, that um, maybe it's not a good idea to focus on anti-Semitism if we want to encourage Muslim moderates. But the problem here is that are they really moderates if they are at the same time anti-Semites? I, I very much think we should be encouraging Muslim moderates. I just think that, that we ought to have a litmus test, which is that you're not a moderate if you're a, um, a vicious anti-Semite. I might even tolerate a mild anti-Semite, but I think it, it, there's, there's got to be a line that you don't want to tolerate a vicious anti-Semite. Um, that, it's, that somehow this is not advancing President Obama's agenda towards reaching out to the Muslim world, that you don't, while you're holding a handout, you shouldn't be criticizing at the same time. Um, then there's the idea that um, those who are talking about Muslim or Islamic anti-Semitism are painting with too broad a brush. Um, now, of course, it's a legitimate question to ask how widespread is all of this, but you have to ask the question. You have to talk about those types of things, and I think um, um, another one is that, um, that criticizing, isn't criticizing Islamic anti-Semitism just another form of Islamophobia? Isn't this part of a general tendency in the United States to, to criticize things Muslim? Well, when things need criticizing, you should criticize them, and when things don't, you shouldn't. And I think that it's, um, it doesn't make a person a bigot to point out that somebody else is a bigot. I mean, I think that people should examine their own sentiments and ask themselves if, they, them, you know, if they're really so pure when they're thinking about other groups. I think that's a reasonable um, tendency for a person to have, but I don't think that it makes you a bigot ipso facto by pointing out bigotry in other groups. Um, there's also the, the idea that, um, well, actually the last comment I'll make, the last comment I'm going to make is that there seems to be a dismissive mindset towards contemporary anti-Semitism that what you find in the intellectual community is by and large not arguments against what I am saying, but you find largely a poo-pooing of this sort of thing. And that this poo-pooing um, has been noticed by a number of people who are studying it. 
that there that the way of dealing with this is not by counter argument, but rather by kind of a quick wave of the hand or by ignoring arguments. And I think that the reason for this is that secretly the people who are doing the ignoring, to the extent that they've seen this evidence, I think they suspect that they're wrong about this. And that I, I think that's why they don't want to engage the, um, the argument. Um, I'm not going to go into why the left has ended up in this horrible state. There have been some very interesting and important essays, a lot of them associated with ISGAP and other people, and I've um, drawn a lot of the other people who are parts of these series. But I think that um, clearly part of the, you can't escape that part of the problem here is that progressive just doesn't seem so progressive anymore. Anti-racist, pro-human rights, a lot of the people who are in the human rights community don't seem to me to be advocating human rights. A lot of people in the anti-racist community seem to be very selective in their anti-racism. And that um, I think that this is a problem. And that's, what, um, that's sort of the final parting message I want to leave you with. <laughs>